and welcome back to Manga Kaiwa. Yep, episode 7. And just sort of continuing on with the sort of pattern that we've been on for a while now, which is, you know, we do like a, a 10 favorites list and then do something a bit different, maybe. Um, that's sort of what this falls under. So we're going to be doing another, um, I guess, you know, top 10 favorites. So again, this isn't really an objective listing or something that we're trying to make out as objective. This is really just preferential. Um, and, you know, we do throw obviously a bit of criterion in the mix. But um, today we are going to be doing top 10 favorite anime weapons. Um, yes. Yeah. And I mean, like, I'm actually curious, like, how long did this take you? Because it took me actually longer than any other list for some weird reason. I, I think it was actually the same for me. Because I, I think that, like, because um, when I think of weapons, I immediately think of them in their traditional sense as in, you know, I guess, like, th you know, uh, swords, spears, and stuff like that. But, um, but yeah, so I guess you'll see that, I mean, in my list, at least, um, I, I'm, I definitely have weapons that aren't really weapons in the traditional sense, but they are in the sword, so. Yeah, yeah, I mean, for me, it was more traditional weaponry, but the thing is, like, I think what was so hard for me was that, first of all, there is a large choice, but it's not that simple, right? I feel like when I think of weapons, yeah, like, sure, there's the kunai from Naruto, like, uh, the windmill shuriken that Naruto uses as well, but at the end of the day, it's just sort of like, like, they don't have names, they're not really marked. I think it's actually, while there are a lot of weapons in anime, like, actually having a weapon that has significance is not that common, if you ask me. Like, there are some weapons that I would say do kind of have, like, a significance um, in yeah. the general, like, pace of the story because of, like, I don't know, some kind of power they wield or whatever. But I do think it's still kind of strange because, you know, it's not always like that. Like, I was struggling to kind of, like, figure out, like, how am I going to put this on the list? Like, am I going to say... Something that sounds really awkward. I don't want to like spoil what I'm going to put on there. But like, yeah. Uh, anyway, that's sort of my list. Um, and yeah, I guess I sort of had like these weird moments where I was also like, wait, is that really something I could put on this? This is not really a weapon in the traditional sense. But, you know, I thought it was cool. Alrighty. Yeah. All right. So I guess well, without further ado, we'll get started. All right. So do you want to start with your number 10, Quentin? Yep, I'll do that. And so my... First spot goes to D. Grayman's um, Sword of Exorcism. So again, this is one of those swords that, like, when the protagonist, um, Alan Walker, pulls it out, it's mentioned once by name and then never again. <laughs> so essentially, it's one of the swords that looks very cool. It's a very big sword. Um, and so there are a few things I really like about it. Um, and there are also a few things that I'm sort of like, I, that I would hesitate to bump it up in the list, I would say. Um, so it's a sword essentially that's part of, again, I think I've mentioned this earlier in maybe our power systems video, I can't remember, but in D. Grayman, the power system is called Innocence, which is basically sort of like this God-given kind of like material, this kind of like dust, it, it comes in various different forms, and it's just sort of blessed with a certain, uh, few people, and those people are called exorcists, they end up having to kill these Akuma, um, these kind of like you know, these kind of uh, manifestations of people's sorrow and negative emotions. It's very kind of reminiscent of a lot of series you see today, but this is actually from the time of, like, uh, Hagane no Renkinju. So it's like, it's like from the time when uh, Full Metal Alchemist was being kind of regularly published. So it's pretty old. Um, it is a hiatus series, but I'm sidetracking now. Anyway, the reason I mentioned uh, Innocence is because Alan Walker's ability is sort of like this form that he comes into, which is called Crown Clown. And he kind of develops the form, learns how to use it more efficiently. And sort of like the pinnacle of that, I would say, is this sort of exorcism. 
And my favorite thing about it is that, and I think this is actually something that I really did not like when I first read. I thought it was, well, that's weird. It's like you get, you get, you get something, but you give something equally valuable in, in, you know, in return. He needs to take his arm. His arm essentially morphs into the sort of exorcism, meaning that he doesn't have an arm. He only has one arm and the sword when he's fighting. Mm. And I just found that very weird. I mean, the point is, you know, from the get-go, you could see he was more powerful when he used the sword, even if he didn't have one more arm. But it just looked weird to me. But the more and more I saw it, I kind of, like, realized that it, it sort of, like, was kind of weirdly reflective of Alan's character in the sense that how, how he's resourceful. And how sort of, like, you know, I felt like this wasn't, like, something that I think the author capitalized. But I do think what I've noticed throughout D. Grayman is how much Alan Walker is sort of, like, you know, pushed around by fate and, like, his friends and things like that. And the fact that he's like a, like giving an arm for a sword to help his friends in most situations is sort of like weird to me and kind of resonates with I think a lot of his character, yeah. And it's sort of like one of those powers where you realize like you know you know there's a price to pay and all that kind of stuff, but it's I guess not that straightforward since he's not really underpowered in that situation. Yeah, so that's my number ten. Oh, voice crack. <laughs> all right, yeah. let's go on to yeah. your number ten then, Ben. All right. So, uh, number 10 on my list is, uh, well, I guess these aren't really weapons in the traditional sense, but uh, they're Joe's gearless arms and fists, essentially, in um, Megalobox. So, essentially, so, Gearless Joe, the protagonist, is called Gearless Joe because he is a boxer who doesn't use gears, which are essentially enhancements in a world where um, that's sort of the norm for boxers to do. And... Like arm enhancements, yeah. 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 Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I, I think that, um, and you know, obviously what makes that so great is that, like, you know, he's this dude who doesn't use enhancements, but he's able to rise up the ranks and beat, uh, beat countless people who do use them. So it's, it just really goes to show that um, Joe is a character that um, that has this sort of drive to win that and I guess with That's that sort drive, of handicap almost like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I get what you're saying. Yeah, with that drive, he sort of overcomes. I well, I guess is in a sense his drive is his gear. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, yeah, and what's amazing is that um, he even motivates like the champion Yuri to fight without gears himself. Mm -hmm. And the epic, the final battle battle is essentially just um, Joe and Yuri fighting without gears. So it's basically a normal boxing match. But within that world, it's just, um, it really is special because it's not really something that happens anymore. But yeah. Yeah, and so my number nine spot, um, or wait, yeah, that is number nine now, right? Yeah. So, I mean, so I think that the weird thing with, um, you know, the, my number nine spot is that it's very different from Joe's like gearless kind of um, gloves, his, his kind of gauntlets and all, whatever like he uses to be able to compete in those fights. I think that's very like, kind of like noble weapon almost. Um, and I think like the reason I think, I think that's so like kind of weirdly uh, dovetails nicely into my number nine is that like, it's sort of like, um, it's kind of like the opposite. Like, whereas that is sort of like a symbol of, you know, I guess Joe's sort of like, you know, what some people might call stubbornness, uh, but his like, you know, desire to use his drive as opposed to, like, actual physical enhancements to be able to win something, you know. I think, you know, in a way it's different and in a way it's the same, but Shaman King's uh, Futsuno Mitama no Tsurugi, so it's like the sword of Futsuno Mitama, and so essentially 
it's sort of like it's literally this stone this red stone slab that's kind of carved into like this toyish looking knife like if you've ever like had like this nerf knot and like sores when you were younger i don't yeah. know if you ever like encountered those at a friend's house or anything i did it's sort of like a it looks like that it looks like you could have it like as a plushie or something like that <laughs> but essentially i think it actually does have roots in like japanese mythology but it's not a sword in the traditional sense because it's specifically made for oversouls, which I think you've encountered already in yeah. where you are in the anime. Um, and without going into too much spoilers, because it's, I think, pretty far ahead of where you are, um, I think what's so amazing about Futsu no Mitama, just like sort of Joe has to use his drive, I think in this situation, um, Yo, the user, basically has to, like, it all depends on how strong his will is, how strong his heart is. And if it's strong enough, he can, it doesn't matter, like, the strength of, like, the Futsumitama, he can make it stronger, basically, because it's there for an Oversoul. Um, and yeah, that's probably, like, one of my favorite Oversouls in All the Shaman King. Um, that's, that's a really good Oversoul, the one that he makes with the Futsumitama, but there's another one which is also cool. But anyway, that was my number nine, so yeah, let's go on to yours then. Yeah, alright, so for my number nine is uh, Gintoki's Bokuto from Gintama. So, um... Um, I, I think this is, uh, you know, uh, kind of a comedic one because Gintoki's Bokuto is a very, is very powerful for a wooden sword. <laughs> but um, it, it, it makes sense within the story because Gin, Gintoki um, lives in the Edo period and he can't, and therefore he can't really use a, I guess, a real sword because he's not a, an, a, 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 I guess, a government um, like a commissioned, yeah, 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 yeah. government commissioned samurai, even though he's a samurai himself. So mm -hmm. he uses a wooden sword to sub, uh, just obviously, you know, because of that. But, 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 uh, but, you know, he's, um, he is able to fight on par with people with real swords and with um, the Bokuto, yeah, with yeah, the Bokuto, yeah. which is a wooden sword, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh -huh. And, yeah. um, and yeah, and I, I think that what's special about Gintama is that, um, you know, it, it, well, it is a com comedic series first and foremost, but it also makes tons of references to other series. So what I, what, um, what I felt really appreciated was that um, there was this one episode where um, Ginto uh, Gintoki meets the spirit of his Bokuto, and, and it's pretty much just um, Zangetsu, well, yeah, old yeah, man yeah. Zangetsu from the Bleach anime. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and yeah, and it's like, you know, it's like attaching significance to Gintoki's Bokuto, even though it doesn't really have any, any significance per se, but it's just... I don't know, yeah. so I did some spoiling for myself from Gintama, because I was doing a bit of research while I was putting together this, this list just to jog my memory on certain things. And like, in one of the lists that I was looking at, there was Gintama's, you know, like, Gintoki's Bokuto. And apparently, like, I t tell me if I'm wrong, but it's made from like some kind of special wood, though. It like, is. Oh, yeah, I yeah, think it is. Yeah, because yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think the actual name for it is um, Lady Toya, but um, which is kind of I think name dropped at one point, but I'm not sure if it comes up again. But um, yeah, it is. So I, I guess that is kind of like the explanation. It's like for, a one thousand year old tree or something like that. Yeah, yeah. 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 So um, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So can we move on to my number? Uh, I think then it would be seven, right? That we're doing right now. Oh no, no, eight, eight, eight of yeah. course, yeah. Okay, so my number eight is actually a pretty, I think, tragic weapon. I know in some ways it's not obvious, but it's the Spear of Longinus from, uh, from Evangelion, Neon Genesis Evangelion, and it appears in basically every single Neon Genesis Evangelion movie uh, and like the later part of the series. Um, but what I find so cool about the Spear of Longinus, as kind of simple as this sounds, is the design. 
I think it's just very like angelic almost because of like the sort of lack of like, I don't know, surface detailing. I don't know how you would call that. It literally looks like a very like nice piece of like someone's gate. Like, you know, <laughs> it looks like someone just sawed something off of like a, some great estate's gate or something like that. And it's like this kind of this, this bident. It's like these, these two like points at the end. Yeah. And I found what was so interesting about it is the really kind of brutal ways it was used. And again, it's not like I enjoy that. I think it, it adds significance to the story though, especially how, I don't know if you've seen the end of Evangelion, where one of, the, I think the angels uses the Spear of Longinus that I think, I'm not sure, I think Asuka was using herself and basically pierces her AT fields and like stabs her. And I think the resonance is high enough that her eye basically like is not usable anymore after that. I guess, you know, in certain oh, timelines, because yeah. that's yeah. how it is in Evangelion. But um, I think another thing that's so cool about the Spear of Longinus is it just becomes very common. And I think the later kind of like, you know, you know, arcs of Evangelion and all the reboots and stuff. Again, I haven't watched enough of those to really be able to say credibly, but I think it becomes more common. And it's just sort of like the only weapon you can use if you want to have any hope of defeating like really high level angels. Um, and I find it's also just very scary because I remember especially when it's thrown um, at that angel who's literally in outer space from the ground. It just impressed me the way that it moved. And I mean, I think... And it's another thing is that this weapon, we don't even know, I think it's full potential yet because it's done things that it's never done before, basically on a consistent basis. And I think that's the idea. It's like, it's a, a, something beyond our understanding as human beings, because it like morphs to kind of like, like basically just barge through any kind of AT field or obstacle there is, which I think is really cool. Yeah, that's my number eight. Yeah, all right. So um, my number eight is Migi, which is uh, from Parasite. So Migi... Oh, you are getting creative here. Yeah. Though, for sure. <laughs> no, no, I'm not, I'm not saying... I'm not saying... Yeah, I think that's... that's yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Migi is just Japanese fur, right? And it's essentially... Um, so it's this parasite that um, inhabits the right hand of Shinichi Izumi, who is the protagonist in Parasite. Um, and essentially, Mi uh, Shinichi uses Migi to fight other parasites that just essentially take over humans completely. And um, so I, I think Parasite really explores this, because um, I, I think there is a certain trope that's been, uh, I, I think, ha had um, a good number of, I guess, well, has been explored in good regard, I guess, where um, a, a sort of, I guess it's the trope of a sentient weapon. But I think Parasite really does explore this trope well well because i um migi is a is essentially sentient a, life form a sentient yeah. life form and he is a parasite but um but i think his chemistry with shinichi is really uh nice to watch because yeah. he's sort of like this um alien who has essentially no clue about like the human and world he questions and everything and he, yeah, yeah. yeah i think there are actually quite a few funny moments in, in that show even though i haven't watched it i mean all i remember is that it was like one of those madhouse shows that everybody was talking about yeah so yeah, um, I mean, I think it's the sentient, uh, like, weapon idea is really interesting. I think another series that really explores that quite in depth is Soul Eater, um, yeah. where, like, characters are literally able to turn into weapons. But what I find a bit weird about Soul Eater is just, like, I, I didn't like a lot of the designs of the weapons for some weird reason. Like, it just didn't vibe with me. So they didn't really make this list, but just a note that we appreciate a lot of those I mean, I at least appreciate a lot of those sentient weapons. Yeah, yeah. and in combat, um, Migi is pretty awesome to watch because he 
I mean, she, um, she, 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 she needs to barely doesn't have to do anything, basically. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he just, she needs to just, or Migi just scythes everybody down. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. So my number seven is the sword mace from Gundam Iron-Blooded Orphans. So Iron-Blooded Orphans is a really special kind of Gundam series. First of all, it was the most recent sort of like brand new series with no other connection to any other Gundam series ever. Um, and I think it was just a very nice series because I think it did a lot of things that a lot of other series, you know, Gundam, like, additions to the franchise were not able to do, which is add a bit more tragedy to the story, I would say. But then also, I found that the aesthetic and the sort of feel that was created by the sort of, like, more bloody, like, nature of the fights, there was a lot more risk you had to take in order to become a successful pilot. Like, I especially remember, like, uh... The, the the operation that some of them had to go through in order to be able to sync with their bots a bit more, which is sort of like Evangelion-esque, I have to say. But it wasn't quite... So the thing that's special about um, Teketz no Orphans, so Iron-Blooded Orphans, is that there are no beams, beam weapons. There, well, there's only one, but it's essentially not being used anymore because it's too powerful. It's too unpredictable. Um, and if you don't know, Gundam is a series that basically is pretty iconic for the fact that there's a lot of beam-based weapons, like with lasers shooting everywhere and like very colorful all the time. And in all honesty, when I look at a lot of like the old Gundam series, I really get turned off by the beams. They just don't look very fun. It's just like, you know, the, the Gundam moves a bit robotically, positions its rifle or whatever and shoots. But the cool thing about Iron-Blooded Orphans is that there are no beams, meaning they almost use like bullet-like weapons or they would use like physical almost like swords and axes and like there's this one like Gundam that has literal scissors that it uses in combat which was a bit wacky but this one is wielded by the Barbatus Lupus Rex which is or no the Barbatus Lupus sorry so not the Lupus Rex because in Gundam the 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 piloted like the protagonist's piloted Gundam often evolves as the threat level rises or as their first ones get destroyed and so this is the second variant of the Barbatos. I mean, technically, um, I guess the third, but essentially with this, it has like almost like this guts sized sword. It looks very kind of like rustic and like very monotone. There's not really any kind of coloration difference between like the hilt and the actual blade. It's just this big slab of metal. And it's not like in proportion to the Barbatos, it's not nearly as big as Dragon Slayer, but it has like a similar kind of chopper, kind of like just kill feel, you know? And I think the weird thing is the name is kind of really, um, I think, fitting for this because it's can be used to like crush and cut things at the same time, basically. Which I thought it was just one of those weapons that I thought was like really kind of, you know, one of the things that made me love Gundam. Um, because it was, I think, one of the first series I watched, and from Gundam at least. And just seeing how there were no beams was really interesting. And what actually really I find even more interesting is that the arc when that sword mace was used most was the arc where they basically had to fight this giant robot that was the last basically robot to be able to use beams and you could see how just chaotic it was and how you know i think it's a bit more realistic because if beams existed i mean that would be pretty chaotic you know yeah yeah uh-huh. definitely um yeah. yeah all right so um so number seven uh, seven on my list is um spikes pistol from Cowboy Bebop, and they, um, I mean, this is obviously a very simplistic weapon, but um, but you know, but um, Spike wields it to um, well, I mean, obviously he's really good at wielding it, but I think it also speaks to a very uh, 
nice uh, creative decision that I really appreciated in Cowboy Bebop, where it's a sci it's a it's sci-fi and it's like it's um in space essentially, but um but the weapons aren't all too futuristic and and Spike's pistol obviously reflects that um it's and it's actually based on an in an actual model. It's a Jericho nine forty one, which is an Israeli pistol. So I, f I always find it funny because um when I look up like how like like why I guess the creators chose um that pistol specifically it's um it's really just because they wanted to choose an obscure foreign pistol which I just find really cool but um but yeah I mean it's and I guess um you know it's also cool is that um so Spike's um I guess I guess you know arch nemesis Vicious um uses a katana I believe and what I find interesting about that is that um. It's. I feel like it's um, an interesting creative de creative decision to have the protagonist using the, the gun and the antagonist using the blade. Um, Usually it is the other way around. It somehow is, yeah. I feel like yeah. Yeah. Because it's like the underdog would typically have the sword, right? Yeah. But I don't know. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I mean, yeah, I I, I remember that being bit weird especially like i think i like what you said about the futuristic setting like it just seems a bit off-putting in like a good way yeah they have like these kind of weapons that you might see even now or earlier than now yeah yeah all right well i'll move on to my um i think i'm we're on number oh yeah number wait we're on number four right or i think we're on number six well yeah but like yeah, yeah the fourth one down okay so oh, number yeah. six um all right so yeah i have the G the Z gun from Gantz. So the Gantz Z gun. So Gantz is a series that is very, very weapons focused because essentially it is a series about these people who are trapped in this sort of system where they have to continually go on these missions and obviously in order to be on these missions where they're basically assigned to kill these massive aliens, they have to have some kind of weapons to be able to compete. Um and oftentimes that means like, you know, some pretty powerful weapons. But the way that Gantz works is that there's a 100-point system. If you're able to get at 100 points according to, like, you know, d killing different aliens across a certain amount of time across different missions, um, if you mass the points enough, like killing either a lot of small ones or, you know, one really dangerous one that is worth a lot of, large amount of points, you have one of three options, which is either getting out of the game, resurrecting one of your comrades, which I think is a very interesting choice that's played out very well in the series. But the third one which I don't think is appreciated enough in a lot of the analyses I kind of hear about, is um, gaining a powerful weapon and staying in the game. So you're not able to get out, but you're able to gain a powerful weapon. And what I think is so kind of cruel about this, 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 this choice is that when you get it, you basically have the Z-Gun. And the Z-Gun is like, it looks pretty kind of simplistic, but it's a huge kind of like gun that is sort of like, um, imagine like a sort of like a... Uh, like a, a square, but like one part is sort of like cut off. It's like kind of like a, 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 almost like a staple when it's not kind of pushed in already. And you kind of hold it. And when you activate it, there's no blast that comes. In fact, I think it's actually quite confusing for the characters when they first press it. Cause like, wait, this is the most powerful weapon for the first like split second. And then what happens is this is like one of the most interesting ways I think that like Gantz went about like, you know, carrying out its edgy gore. Basically in a circular area, it kind of applies like an incredibly strong gravitational force and crushes everything there. So let's say you activate the, you point it in a certain direction, you activate it, and there's this massive alien. It's squashed to a pulp, basically. And I mean, I think what's so interesting to me about this weapon is that some people do end up choosing that instead of 
going out of the game, which is probably, which is, I think, for a lot of these characters, what they wanted to do when they first got into the game. But it's sort of like, I think, what Gantz does, which is show us how twisted humans are and how sort of like they will take advantage of any means of kind of dominating or kind of like, you know, reigning over another being or person, right? And that's what I find so weird. It's that, you know, this gun is introduced in the Osaka arc, which is essentially where they find out that they're not the only Gantz team. Um, and there are these guys in Osaka who are complete, like, barbarians. They drug themselves in order to not feel pain while they're in combat. And they do these terrible things to the aliens. And it, it, I think the Z-Gun sort of contributes to that, like, a lot. Like, it's sort of like, you know, shows just the cruelty, especially with that crushing. It's pretty disgusting sometimes. I think it's just very characteristic of that arc. And seeing that, like, you know, as cheesy as it sounds, humans are also monsters. Yes. <laughs> yeah, uh -huh. yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, so that was my number, yeah. I think yeah my number six mm -hmm. yeah all right so my number six is um vegito's spirit sword from dragon ball z so vegito is the fusion of goku the main protagonist and vegeta his rival and there's always that I, I think in general um fusions tend to be very cocky just because of the amount the sheer amount of power they gain but vegito is vegito is a special case because he does gain like a lot of vegeta's cockiness and um, I, I think that even kind of shows in the Spirit Sword, because the Spirit Sword is is essentially a blade of key, which is, um, key is, like, the power system in Dragon Ball Z. It's essentially, like, um, essentially, it's, 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 it's essentially weaponized inner energy, but, um, so, and, and it has the appearance of, like, this long, um, sort of, like, beam, almost, like, lightsaber-esque, but, um, but what I find cool about it is that, like, it's, um, very much a, I guess, a shower of, um, you know, a shower of, like, the kind of fighter Vegito is. Because Vegito, he could, you know, obviously go with something more blunt, like a beam, which he does do. But he also uses the spirit sword to almost kind of, like, humiliate his enemies a little, which I find, um, you know, I mean, it's not something I really like, um, but, um, but, you know, <laughs> it's, it's I character, guess, I could, yeah, it's yeah, good yeah. narrative, yeah. yeah, I think it's so cool, like, I'm not gonna beam you from here, I'm gonna take a solid beam and kill you by coming towards you, you know, I guess, <laughs> I guess I get that, yeah, 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 for sure, okay, so then, my number five is another Gantz weapon, um, it's the Gantz sword, and so, the Gantz sword is another one of these weapons that I think just sort of, like, comes at a very important narrative moment, like the Z-Gun in Osaka. Um, but essentially what happens is that we're introduced to this character named Shion Izumi, who's like this sort of like this veteran from the Gantz game. But he chose the option of getting out of the game when he first got 100, or when he got 100 points the last time. And the condition for that is that your memory is erased of everything you've had in Gantz. But when he meets the protagonist, Kurono, he starts to get memory back basically the, the brainwashing basically starts to wear off and he's eventually able to get back into the game and you see this guy he has been thirsting for some kind of violence some kind of like you know excitement in his life because like a lot of those people who chose the z-gun he was sort of obsessed with like this idea of being able to just go out and fight people fight aliens and especially during the first arc where he's able to use it he basically just completely humiliates, I think, a lot of the 
uh, other kind of gangster fighters that we had known so far because since he's a veteran and he's done this countless more times than they have, he's able to use um, many more weapons than we ever thought was possible. One of them being the, this katana, which is like a very weird weapon because you think, oh, well, you have those guns that can blast things to pieces in a second. Why don't you just use those? But no, he decides to use them because he wants the kind of fun of it. And he gets really close and like he's able to like extend the blade longer and like slice these giant elephant aliens. And I don't know, it was, it was this really weird moment for him, especially because you saw that in the hundred or so chapters that had already passed, like they not learned as much as they probably should have. <laughs> there was a lot more to the Gantz like material than possible. Yeah. Than we had imagined. Yeah. All right. Well, that's my number five. All right, so number five on, on my list is uh, Mugen's Tsurugi from um, Samurai Champloo. So um, yeah, so it's Tsurugi is essentially a a blade that has um, that is sort of like that um, has a, that is double edged, like the edge that is I guess the secondary one is um, very short. But I think that comes kind of secondary for Mugen because I don't really see him using the back edge. But anyway. Um, but what I, what I found most most interesting about it is that um, its hilt is very interesting because it's sort of like you know how like um Mugen's um hilt is sort of like upturned like it has like at the side guards like it's it has kind of like up upturned sort of like pieces of metal go um that are sorry upturned but I I think that um I I think that that also kind of like symbolizes his character to an an extent because it's sort of like this non-traditional sword. Like unorthodox kind unorthodox of... Well, yeah, because he's sort of unorthodox. Like exactly, break yeah. dancing samurai. Yeah, yeah, he's, and yeah he's an or unorthodox wild fighter, and his yeah. sword is very reminiscent of that. And, um, and I guess the way he uses it is um, obviously very cool with his um, um, fighting style that consists of break dancing and other, like, cool, like, almost, like, dance-like moves. So, and um, drip. And yes. drip, yes. <laughs> Okay, so my number four is the Graviton Beam Emitter. And the weird thing with this weapon is that I'm not really, and this is actually one of the things I like about it, I'm not really able to assign it to a specific series. It's basically just 90% or even like 100%, I don't know, because I haven't read every one of the series, of Tsutomu Nihei's series. So Nihei Tsutomu is the guy who wrote Blam, um, Knights of Sidonia, Biomega, and... I mean, although he's written a few other series that I haven't really gotten to yet, he has sort of like included in every one of the series, like he's included certain things. There's always a Toha Heavy Industries, so like this, like this organization called Toha Heavy Industries, they always play some kind of role in those two stories, which are these, those two stories, which are completely unrelated. And then there's also always this thing called the Graviton Beam Emitter which is often, like, this forbidden, like, ultra-powerful weapon that, like, you know, everybody kind of, you know, like, gasps at when they see it, for example. And it's portrayed in very different ways in various kind of series, but I do think that, like, my favorite interpretation of those would have to be in Biomega and Blam. So in Blam, the character Kiri um, is, I think I've talked about this series before, but he's essentially just wandering this kind of, like, this these planes. He's kind of, like, is building the size of the solar system, this mega structure. And that's where the whole series basically takes place. And in order to sort of like blast through different doors that he needs to get through because they're all locked somehow. And like, you know, he needs to like destroy all these kind of weird silicone life beasts that are coming at him. And like, he uses this graviton beam emitter, which essentially is like this beam that 
I don't think we've ever seen anything being able to kind of resist the blast. Like it punches through everything to an extent to which, and I think this is actually one of the things that people love about so many of his artwork, especially in Blam, when he fires it off, you'll often see like these double pages where like it just keeps going. Like it just keeps going through walls and walls and walls and walls and walls, like into the next kind of level of the, of the building and stuff like that. It's really interesting, actually. Yeah, you, you know, that, that that does kind of remind me of, like, the beams in DBZ, like, the blasts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because a lot of times they, like, sort of, like, go out into space and they yeah, just yeah. keep going and going. <laughs> yeah. So Yeah, I think, like, Gallic Gun, doesn't, that, doesn't Gallic Gun do that? Or, wait, no, I think maybe Vegeta yeah. fires it from space. I don't know. Something like that. Yeah, because I, 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 I Final Flash did that. Yeah, yeah, I get that's what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> that's what I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah. Ah, uh, yes, Vegeta's mini um, attacks with um, English Beams, names. yes. Beams. Beams, yes. <laughs> Just beams. Just beams, yeah. Um, all right. So um, number four on my list is Karapika's Chains from Hunter Hunter. So, um, yeah. So Karapika essentially, so these chains are conjured by Karapika since um, in the world of Hunter, <clears throat> in the world of Hunter Hunter, there are, uh, Nen is the main power system, which is in a sense similar to Ki, um, but um, is weaponized in a very different way because there are, I, I think six different categories of Nen users, and Karapika is a conjurer, which means that he can, you know, conjure um, different things, and he, and he conjures change with chains because I, he wants to, you know, well, he wants to, I guess, from his words, um, dr uh, chain his enemies down oh, to hell. Which is a bit edgy, but it's, is not, very, it's not like edgy, that. Very edgy, but, um, mm -hmm. yeah, so, but, but Karapika's chains are... Are, are utilized in um, tandem with his ability, Emperor's Time, which actually allows him to use all of the different... Um, Nen categories. Nen categories to 100% um, efficiency. So he has a heal chain, and then he also has the dowsing chain, which I think is his main, I guess, uh, you know, chain... Tracking. Of, tracking of chain. And, um... But, um... But, yeah, I mean, and, um... But uh, and it, I feel like he does. Um, he uses it very well. Yeah. Very well, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think Kropika versus Uvogun is a very uh, good fight that it, that um, shows his proficiency profic proficiency with using his chains. Mm -hmm. But yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. So I'm talking about that series later. So yeah. I will leave my comments for then. But right. um, my number three spot is Anotsu Kagehisa's sword from Blade of the Immortals. So. Just to give you a quick lowdown, Blade of the Immortals is this very kind of this series with a lot of very morally ambiguous characters. There's no good side. There's no bad side. It's just a bunch of people just doing things, and sometimes they happen to have conflicting interests and they fight. And one of the kind of main plot points is that this girl had her father and mother killed by this band, this sort of dojo that has started to take over everything in the current arc of the story, and their leader, Anotsu Kagehisa, who's not a bad person. Um, leads this dojo called the Itoryu, which are essentially these people who have the philosophy of down with honor, down with this idea that everything has to be guided by a code. If you win, you win. There's no buts. Like, if you do anything and do anything necessary to win, that is a win. There's no such thing as a loss just because you didn't do things right, quote-unquote, right? And I think it's the first time I sort of thought of it that way, and that's really interesting. But also, just the weird, like, unorthodox nature of the, the Itoryu is really interesting. Like, the Itoryu are this group of people who Anotsu kind of recruited. They all have these very kind of eccentric fighting styles and, like, weapons in some cases as well. Uh, but what I find very interesting is Anotsu's weapon himself. 
it quite literally looks like a club. Like a boomerang, a very kind of heavy boomerang, like club-like thing that was sort of like sharpened into like this sword. I don't know, it's hard to explain, but it's this very kind of chunky weapon. <laughs> and it's heavy as a result, right? It's very short and heavy. And I think what was so cool is I think in the, like the third volume or something, the way that Anotsu was able to sort of like demonstrate how he like uses it, because he's a kind of skinny kind of guy and he's not like strong or anything, but he's able to like, he's so skilled as a fighter that he can kind of swing it and use kind of like the, the momentum of it to fight just as efficiently as anyone with like a knife could or something like that, you know? It's, I think, pretty impressive. That's my number three. Yeah. All right, so, um, so my number three is Killer Queen, which is uh, Kira's stand from JoJo's Bizarre Adventure. So essentially, so in JoJo, um, stands are essentially the manifestation of one's soul that are um, that all have unique abilities and appearances. So in Kira's case, Kira is the uh, well, the antagonist, sorry, of uh, Part Four, Diamond is Unbreakable, and um, Killer Queen assumes the form of this very muscular um, humanoid cat. <laughs> Uh, but um <laughs> Jojo's I swear. Yes. <laughs> Jojo's. But, um, but anyway, um what 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 It I looks cool, of, I swear. It definitely looks cool, yeah. <laughs> um but I what but um obviously what's most interesting about Killer Queen is his abilities. So he um so Killer Queen actually goes through multiple um evolutions. So Killer Queen's I guess base ability is to blow something up by touching it. But he also has um What's it called? Um, Nidan no Bakudan. Uh, sheer Heart Attack. Sheer yeah, Heart Attack, which is, of course, another Queen song. And um, Sheer Heart Attack is like this small compartment that comes out of um, Killer Queen's hand. And it's used as this sort of in indestructible homing bomb that... that um, Targets the that, nearest heat source, the, yeah. maximum, the, the, the highest heat source in its vicinity. Yeah. yeah uh -huh. And then I, and in um, Killer Queen's final evolution, he gains the um, ability to use... Um, uh, bites time reversal. <laughs> bites the dust, which is essentially, yeah, this um, time reversal ability that is triggered by, well, this uh, trigger of Akira's choice. I, I think in um, um, it, in JoJo itself, it happens to be, um, it was uh, Hayato's, uh, um, well, I guess it's someone discovering Akira's true identity. Yeah, as a so essentially, if someone is close to, or I think has, they basically become... Uh, yeah, infected like, with the bites of dust, which essentially makes them kind of explode in a loop again and again and again, which is a very common theme in JoJo's, it seems, like this unending kind of death spiral, you know, <laughs> like cars, Diavolo, all that kind of good stuff. All right, well, uh, my number two is Dragon Slayer from Berserk, and I think you probably thought I was going to put this at number one, but, I mean, the, the thing is, like, I definitely would not have hesitated to do that. It really was a bit of a toss-up, and I don't think there's too much separating my number one and two spots, but the thing with Dragon Slayer is just how sort of it has cemented itself as sort of a symbol of Guts' character. It's this massive, giant, like, more than intimidating sword. It literally looks like a cleaver, um, but I think but so kind of, like, cements Dragon Slayer as one of the best weapons of all time for me is the fact that it was introduced in this very kind of short arc after the Eclipse 
where Gatsu was recovering and he was kind of trying to set out, he, you know, Rickert designed or like Goto designed that, that cannon arm that he has, the prosthetic arm. And then, you know, he chances across this sword. And the way that this Guts character, who we don't, we know a bit about at that point, we know a lot about actually, but that we know has been traumatized right now and we're kind of like, you know, just sort of like, we're, we're, we're kind of crestfallen ourselves because we know what happened in the eclipse and all. And he's like just hateful, he's brooding, he's, he's destroyed, he's betrayed. And the way he sees Dragon Slayer and the reaction I remember is sort of weird. The way that he immediately kind of takes interest is really interesting to me. But then, my god, when that apostle shows up right as he's about to leave and he takes Dragon Slayer and just massacres it, I remember just like flipping the page and seeing that like iconic angry gorilla guts panel, like where he's like, ah, <laughs> you like where he's like spacing down and you can't see his eyes because he's so furious. And like, yeah, I think that sort of cemented Dragon Slayer as like, it's sort of like the weapon he uses to stand up against the apostles. And I, especially his backstory, like Goto made it for a king who said, I need a weapon that will slay dragons. And when he saw how heavy it was, he said he basically like exiled Goto and tried to kill him because he was so furious. And now Guts just uses it to perfect efficiency. I feel like that's, <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, I mean, uh, Dragon Slayer shows up on my list as well. So I will, I'll save my comments on it, uh, for when it actually shows up. Uh -huh, but, um, uh -huh. yeah. So, so for number two on my list is, um, Zangetsu, which is, um, I knew Ichigo, it. <laughs> yes, Ichigo Kurosaki's, um, the protagonist's, um, uh, Zanpakuto? Zanpakuto, yes, I keep forgetting. But um, anyway, um, so Zangetsu is, um, um, it, it is uh, this giant sword in Shikai, which I guess is the sort of the uh, first step above the base form of a Zanpakuto. So, um, which, uh, you know, kind of um, goes on the trend that I think Dragon Slayer really started of, of the giant Big sword. sword. Big sword, yes. yes. It looks like a shark tooth. It does, yeah. <laughs> but um, but um, anyway... Um, but, um, yeah, so Zangetsu is, I guess, it's, what makes Zangetsu interesting is that it, I think it's actually one of the more simplistic, um, Zanpaktos within Bleach, but it nonetheless, it really captivates me because, um, um, in its, uh, Bankai form, well, I guess its first Bankai, it assumes the form of this black, um, katana, yeah. katana which is, um, very interesting because, um, you know, I, I guess, um, in that moment, um, Ichigo's op opponent, Byakuya, kind of mimics the ac reaction of the audience because he comments on how it's so small and no real Bankai can be something that pitiful. But Ichigo just completely, you know, I guess, fl metaphorically flips him on his head. He makes him eat his words. Eat his words, yes. And, um, and yeah, it, it, and, um, because it obviously grants him lots of, um, speed, speed yeah. and power as well, which is, um... Because it sort of condenses all his ratio, yeah, I remember yeah. that. Mm -hmm. And, of course, um, Zanketsu goes on to, I guess, further evolve when Ichigo discovers, um, its true nature, and it's... In the, in the Thousand Year Blood War, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it, it becomes, and now it becomes a, well, I guess, um, yeah, two blades... Which essentially symbolize Ichigo's um, hollow, which are you know hollow, which are uh, the um, I guess sort of um, fallen kind of souls, fallen yeah, souls no. within Bleach. So that part of um, Ichigo's heritage, and as well as Ichigo's Quincy heritage, which are um, Quincy's are essentially sort of like um, counterparts to Shinigami in the sense that they also hunt down 
are hollows, but um, they have a different philosophy about different it. Philosophy. Yeah, they're much more violent and brutal with hollows. Yeah. Yeah. So and, and so yeah, because um um I mean I guess in general in Bleach, uh, well I guess with Ichigo, he's kind of this um I guess amalgamation. He's everything. He's everything. <laughs> he's everything. But um but yeah, yeah but I, I think his final. I guess, well, Shikai really symbolizes that well, and of course his final Bankai as yeah, well, yeah. because which, his final Bankai is essentially the two blades combining into one, yeah, yeah. so, yeah. And I think, now that we have, like, our top, like, our nine out of the way, I think this is going to go pretty quickly, because you've mentioned my first one, and I've <laughs> mentioned your first one, like, so my number one is Kurapika's Conjuration Chains. Um, Kurapika's Chains, I don't think you expected this from me, I'm pretty sure. But when I was thinking, like, I love Dragon Slayer, but when I'm thinking of, like, a weapon that I find so cool, but also narratively significant, I think of Kurapika's Conjured Chains. I think what's so cool about them is the different functions that they play, and also just the general style. I've always kind of liked these kind of, like, flexible weapons that sort of, like, you know, bend around and sort of, like, you know, smash things by, like, kind of whipping them or something like that, you know? And I especially like the way that, of course, they're portrayed in um, Kurapika's fight against Uvogan. I think also the fact that their chains is edgy, but also very narratively nice, because it's like, you know, they're not only chains for the, the spiders, so the Phantom Troop members, but they're also chains for Kurapika. And I think that's, you know, a significant part, because, you know, Kurapika does have to use a lot of sacrifices. He does have to do take advantage of the, the contracts that Nen allows, which is essentially you sacrifice something for the sake of, you know, becoming more powerful. Um, and especially, and I think what you told me of the later parts of the, the latest Hunter Hunter arc, mm. Kropika is essentially shortening his lifespan when he uses yeah. them to their full potential. Well, yeah, um, Emperor Time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, yeah, but I think that, yeah, I mean, it is, I, I mean, I also think that, you know, um, his chains are also sort of narratively, narratively significant because they are chains, you know, to the... Um, to the Phantom Troop, but they're essentially also chained. Uh, Karapika's, I guess, um, I guess, it, it, they sort of symbolize how Karapika is ultimately chained to his revenge. Revenge, yes, yeah. I think that's that's interesting, yeah. And especially the way that, like, you see that every contract he's made to enhance his chains and his abilities are for the spiders. Like, his chains, some of his abilities, I think Chain Jail, can only be used on a spider. Yeah. Because that's all that he really cares about at the end of the day, which I think is interesting. Um, yeah, so that's yeah. my number one. All right, and so my number one is Dragon Slayer from Berserk. What? And, yeah, and of course, so Quentin has already, um, you know, talked about it, but um, but I think, um, so another thing that I really like about Dragon Slayer that it it it, it symbolizes a an evolution in Guts's weaponry because Guts from his childhood, has always been wielding oversized swords. So, because um, you know how, because um, he spars yeah, yeah, with yeah, Gambino, yeah, yeah. and <laughs> yeah, and they remark, oh, that sword's way too big for someone his age, but then he goes on to um, wielding a very long sword, a broadsword in um, the Golden Age arc, which is, I guess, the arc that sort of explains Guts's past and his reason for hating Griffith, the protagonist, and... But yeah, but when Guts the gains yeah. mm -hmm. the Dragon Slayer, it's obviously a very awesome moment. And, um, and you know, I, I think there's also a, a very cool quote about it. Um, I, I don't remember who this was said by within Berserk, but I, I think the quote goes, um, dragons are called dragons because no humans can slay them. So when a human can slay them, what is that human called? Yeah, yeah. But, um, but you know... 
it's obviously just a very cool quote, but, um, and mm. there's also the fact that, um, logically, no human should be able to wield, um, the Dragon Slayer, even, you know, somebody of Guts's physical strength. But I think that, I mean, I, and also while, while this obviously isn't, um, I, I don't think directly confirmed within Berserk, but I think, um, I, Guts is able to wield the Dragon Slayer because, because of him being branded and him sort of being within the interstice. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, um, yeah. Yeah. But I think also what's sort of like, I think I love about Dragon Slayer is the fact that, you know, like, I think the reason he was wielding that massive, that, you know, relatively massive sword when he was fighting Gambino or when he was sparring with him was because they didn't have any other sword. And yeah. I feel like it's, I mean, I, I may be looking into this too deeply, but I feel like it's like Guts is always expecting himself and others are also expecting him to do things that are more than what he should technically be doing as what he is, right? Yeah. He's always, like, it's sort of like giving a kid, like, large clothes, like, fit these now, work out until you fit these. Like, you know, it's like, it's sort of like, I don't know, that was a bad example, but essentially it's like, he needs that big sword to kill big apostles. Yeah. <laughs> and humans shouldn't be able to kill apostles, but he uses it anyway, you know? It, it, that's yeah. just guts, yeah. Yeah, that, that is his character, yes. All right, yeah. well... We've gone a bit longer than I think we normally would have, but hopefully you've enjoyed at least some of the episode. And yeah, I mean, yeah. We'll, we'll see you guys next week. We'll come up with something else and come back at it. Yeah, have a great day, fellow strugglers. Strugglers. Welcome to Manga Kaiwa. This is the podcast for two long-time otakus talk about anime and manga until they can't breathe anymore. Let's get right into it.